0: Hello, I'm Arpi, I'm a sustainability professional involved in impact investing in social enterprises.
1: And I'm Sam, an advocate on the role of technology in the pursuit of social innovation, nation-building, and sustainable development.
0: We're both from the IGP's MSC Prosperity Innovation and Entrepreneurship Program. And welcome to, to the Prosperity, Prosperity and Beyond. And Beyond.
1: guests so are you ready for this RP?
0: I sure am Sam. For this episode we have with us a man who wears so many hats and we've lost count already. He's the founder of multiple successful organizations such as BioBean and Skyroom, Fast Forward 2030, Key Worker Homes Fund and, and also an advisor for the Museum of the Home
1: yeah as if that's not enough to keep his time occupied he is also an entrepreneur in residence at ucl and serves as a visiting lecturer at imperial college london his work has been recognized by the likes of the un the guardian bloomberg mit technology review and many more so without further ado let's all welcome arthur
0: Arthur
2: k Awesome to be here, guys. Thank you very much for having me. Great, thank
0: you so much. So, I think just as an icebreaker, because um, we're all new, we're all friends here. Um, (laughs) So, you are a founder of the startup BioGean. Do you still drink in coffee chains?
2: I do, yeah. So I'm a I'm a big coffee drinker. I've got one in front of me right now, oh, that's um, nice, yeah. and I I drink make, not so much in chains. I often drink in independent coffee shops and make a lot of coffee at home, but uh, not not the big oh. chains really. Oh,
0: but are these the coffee shops that you, that buy bean services?
2: uh Biobeam services yeah coffee shops and coffee factories so okay. um mm. we we work with companies like Nestle who have Nescafé brands um, uh-huh. as well as Starbucks Costa Coffee uh, okay. Cafe Nero people like that yeah so okay. a real a real range of independent coffee shops all the way through to the biggest coffee companies in okay. in the world yeah
0: and with that like what is your standard coffee order
2: simple just a, a black coffee maybe a, uh-huh. you know a long yes. black side of that so yeah. of a, a strong short coffee yeah. Right.
1: right very direct very, very straightforward yeah. <laughs> exactly. like... yeah hello go wrong with that i guess yes
0: honestly i think that's a lot of people's standard order
1: not for me (laughs) i'm not in that but yeah thank you for sharing that arthur and perhaps we can now dive into more interesting questions about your background and your personhood starting with okay we did a little bit of digging on your linkedin and we're so sorry about that just a little (laughs) bit of stalking but we noticed that you have nine active roles in a wide range of organizations. So obviously the most prominent of them being the founder of BioBean and also Skyroom. But unknown to many, you also advise the likes of Museum of the Home. And we're just curious, out of all of these commitments, do any of them really just pop out and give you the most fulfillment? And if so, can you identify that?
2: Yeah, so I, I hope my LinkedIn is up to date because yeah that sounds, that sounds like a lot of roles, but I do quite a number of um, advisory roles and teaching positions at, at various universities as well. Um, and I th- the thing I don't necessarily enjoy one the most It's more the range of different activities that I do. I find very enjoyable and stimulating. So it's kind of mm. spending time, for example, uh, you know teaching on the you know prosperity on innovation and entrepreneurship course at UCL. Right. Um, whilst that may seem like a Activity where you kind of just talk to the students. The students such as yourselves are so so amazing that you get a lot of energy and ideas back from that too. Yeah. So it's the the range of activities in and of itself is what gives me a lot of energy and a lot of optimism as well.
1: Right. Maybe just a quick follow-up question. At the top of your head, was there any memorable moment that you had recently that you are, I guess, keen to share or, like, just really, I guess, energises you?
2: Yeah, so this was... Um, Must have been about a month ago, and I was walking through the new Battersea Power Station development Mm. and saw a shop from a project that I'd been one of the mentors and student advisors on whilst at at, at Imperial, one of my students there, Uh had gone all the way from kind of a sketch on the back of a napkin probably four years ago now to a a large retail store looking incredible in Battersea Power Station. So that was really exciting and inspiring to see something that had gone from, you know, a twinkle in someone's eye mm-hmm. four years ago th- all the way through the kind of the innovation and development cycle to being a, a kind of high you know next to the Apple store and next to Lululemon in Plastic right. Power Station. Right. So that was really yeah. exciting.
0: Yeah it's like seeing tangible success um, from like scratch work that we re- that you've been doing.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. And even and the success I think is part of it, but it's more For me anyway, it's more people making brave decisions to try and get things off paper and Mm. to happen in the real world. Because there's an awful lot in terms of people wanting to do things and talking about doing things and not. So, for example, you guys going and actually doing this podcast. um, So many people, I've had probably 20 podcast ideas, but I've never made a podcast. Mm. So so many people will think about making a podcast and say, wouldn't that be cool? Never do it. And it's not, as you know, it's not the hardest thing in the world to do. You need to book a guest you need to get the kit together you need to work it through but it takes work and it also takes bravery to put it out there and say this is who i am this is what i stand for and this is how we're gonna go about it and so it's um that's the stuff i like seeing happen
0: Mm. well thank you for (laughs) acknowledging our work in this in other things that we also digged around we also found out that in one event that you promoted entitled is the pursuit of happiness making us miserable what like key principles from this activity do you still remember and how do you think answering this question contributes to one's path towards prosperity?
2: So this was a an organization I set up with a friend of mine when I was studying architecture at UCL mm. and it's called Students for Happiness Oh, okay. um, and it was all around how people could look after their health and wellbeing in a, in a more um, sensible way. At a time where the debate, this was probably 12 years ago now. So the debate was pretty nascent in the UK in terms of talking openly about mental health challenges, wellness, that kind of stuff. Obviously that's now changed materially over the subsequent um, 10, 12 years, but at the time it was, it was pretty unusual. And the, this particular event was looking at how we're told that we should be a certain way, we should be you know, up at you know, 5.30 a.m., yeah. meditate for half an hour, Drink your kombucha latte thing, <laughs> then do this or the other. Yeah. And it's more kind of saying actually, the, the knowing what in inverted commas is the right way to live or the right way to do or how to be happy sometimes is actually pretty unhelpful because people, for example, who do have a lot of my friends have suffered from pretty serious mental health issues, for example, and they feel everything in my life is going well. Why am I feeling depressed? And it's a mm. very thin understanding of what is kind of wellness and mental health issues. Yeah. And so and the pursuit of it um is an admirable goal, but often the idea that one must yeah. achieve be be happy or yeah. you're wrong if you're not happy mm. is is I think where that event was was framed around. Mm. Um but as I say this organization students of happiness started in about well, at, at university with my then girlfriend Georgie Gilmore, Um and in the subsequent years we took it to a few other universities as well so one University of Oxford um, University uh, well, the London School of Economics and then University of Toronto Canada
0: so like even back then you were already sort of interested with this idea of not necessarily prosperity but then in this understanding how we pursue things to be happy
2: yeah well the things I've done in a kind of more entrepreneurial sense or setting up organisations or doing creative projects, it's usually from the perspective of does something like this exist already? Mm-hmm. And so it was very much looking from the perspective of this doesn't exist now. There is not a um, open, calm, sophisticated conversation around, um, in this case, happiness. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was looking to try and create that. And we did get a lot of um, amazing speakers for it. We had people like Sir Anthony Selden, Lord Richard Layard, John Lloyd, John um, Lloyd, Theodore Zeldin. So we had some really um, impressive and inspirational speakers who came and kind of shared their their insights and wisdom with us on route, which is which is great.
1: Well, even during your undergrad, you were doing so many things already. (laughs) But yeah, just to jump on the next question. So you are the founder and chairman of Fast Forward 2030. And since you started this in 2016, can you share with us the biggest developments that you've seen in this space, and how they're contributing to attaining the UN SDGs?
2: Yeah, so the idea for Fast Forward 2030 was Henrietta Moores, my co-founder and co-chair of the organisation. Mm-hmm. And I remember very vividly us talking about it um, straight after the um, kind of they, were, they were launched, basically. And it was very clear at that time that there was a coherent plan for government in terms of how they could tackle the SDGs, a coherent plan for big business and NGOs about how they could tackle the SDGs. But... Entrepreneurs, particularly early stage entrepreneurs were completely left out of the conversation right. so there wasn't even a an organization to to try and um, coordinate even mm-hmm. at the most simple level some of this stuff um, and so again, it kind of started from this point of saying this should exist why is there not a voice for this group and why is there not why is there not activity or coordination happening around this mm-hmm. and so we started fast forward twenty thirty um, and what we do there is technically it 's kind of we call it a think tank but it 's essentially we kind of organize events we try and we write some white papers we provide a framework and support structure for early stage entrepreneurs and particularly try and get people who are thinking of starting a business and try and tilt them to do one that has a social environmental or economic positive impact right. and then for those already starting a business that is in that sphere, we try and give them the support the network the peer to peer learning the um, insights from you know, both the Fast Forward 2030 network itself, where we have podcasts and events and stuff like that, but also from the connection with UCL. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so today, we're kind of operating in three different countries in the UK, in Lebanon, and in Kenya.
0: It's so much that it's a, you've done so much at, a, at such an early stage that it ma- it makes me wonder what were sort of the ins- what was the inspiration for you to become an entrepreneur like um e- you you're in you're involved in various enterprises and i'm sure like entrepreneurs like you have an origin story what was the origin story for you to become an entrepreneur
2: in I, I, whilst I technically am an entrepreneur and that I set up and run organisations, I don't necessarily think of myself as that, it's more, mm. as I say, it's more I'm creating things that sometimes happen to be organisations in response to either gaps in markets or challenges that need tackling. Right. So it's more I'm kind of working with teams of people to try and coordinate action at four things mm. um, rather than specifically being interested in being an entrepreneur. And actually, my starting point was I, I trained as I studied architecture at mm. UCL, and my starting point was around how you can try and make change in cities, and that's always been my interest in terms of how you can use the city as a uh, lens to be able to create change. Um, I decided not to become an architect and instead to go down a route of running organisations, and that was a view that I had, I had and still have around it not being the most effective way to make that change I wanted mm. to see. Um, So to kind of skirt around your question, uh, (laughs) essentially I'm saying I happen to do creative projects that end up sometimes with companies at the end of them um, and they're in response to solving a problem problem or or seeing something that isn't yet being addressed and trying to address that.
0: Do you think in this pursuit there were particular pitfalls that still haunt you and whether or not, how were you able to bounce back from these kinds of pitfalls?
2: So a huge number of um, pitfalls on route. Um, I can g- go into some examples shortly. Um, in terms of bouncing back, I mean, I'm in terms of acknowledging my privilege, I'm kind of a, you know, born into a middle-class family in a global megacity in a you know, prosperous country as a white heterosexual male. So it's kind of, I've had a lot of uh, kind of a very, very fair start in, uh, kind of... Um, strong start in life in terms of being able to have some of that resilience to be able to work through it and also, Mm. um, you know, personal stability to be able to kind of work through some of those more challenging times. So entrepreneurship, especially at the moment in countries like the UK, is very weighted toward and is not particularly spoken about in um, kind of the discourse, but is weighted towards um kind of people from middle class background people who've had some maybe university education or something like this and it 's a luxury in many ways to be able to pursue riskier ventures and to take those risks without necessarily the feeling that you're going to you know go bankrupt or end up on the street right. and so it's a, it's a big big standing start that people um like I have had to do that but not not many um call that up
0: mm. And in terms of like the pitfalls that you sort of wanted to highlight?
2: I mean, these range from, you know, everything you can imagine, ranging from people trying to uh, steal my company from me multiple times, multiple different people, multiple different times, Mm. multiple different companies, um, through to um, our factory burning down at BioBean, through to, um, you know, having physical threats of violence from people uh, yeah. Through to being blackmailed by someone once, mm. through to yeah, you, know, you name it, all sorts of uh, weird and wonderful things. And then you know you have then you have kind of you know, more light-hearted ones as well. Right. Um, so yeah, a lot of lot of uh, you know learnings on route and yeah. uh, and some serious, ranging from almost criminal things happening through to uh, just you know kind of usual kind of someone messing around trying to nick things from you.
0: So like. Connecting from what you said prior to this, do you think like the background was able to sort of cushion how you pivoted or were you able to build like sort of a support structure for you to be able to sort of withstand or pivot on when something like that happens?
2: I think it's the ability to be quite resilient in face of those things happening and then also not to like bad stuff will happen so acknowledging bad stuff will happen and then working through it when it does in a relatively methodical way So I'm, I'm and I'm pretty good at being able to um, separate out things so for example I've, I've got friends who run companies let's say and there'll be I don't know something bad will be happening in their company and that will ruin their social life say or their, yeah. you know, their time with their partner or their um, mental health and I guess what I'm... Um, pretty good at, from a, as a, it's not necessarily all good in terms of this, but what I'm good at in terms of as an entrepreneur is I'm good at being able to segment out things that are going wrong mm. in, in my personal life, say from my professional life, and be able to put that in a clear emotional box, mm. and then also between companies as well. So let's say um, I sit on the board of a, uh, a museum, as I mentioned, and let's say something's going wrong there. And then something's going, I won't let that or I'll try not to let that I'm quite good at not letting that filter over into my day job, say. Okay. Um and vice versa.
1: So what I got from that is compartmentalization is key. So that you can handle <laughs> different situations sure. in different stages of your life.
2: Yeah. With yeah.
1: various like engagements and whatnot.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I'm not necessarily sure that is a um always a a good thing, mm. um, in terms of I think I think probably a, a therapist who may have some views, <laughs> <laughs> views views on if that's a healthy mm. way to behave. No, the NHS. <laughs> <thing>. <laughs> um, but certainly in terms of being able to um, look at a challenge directly and be right. able to try and address that without necessarily, obviously there's some maybe emotional crossover that I'm not acknowledging here, but without having bringing the stress of that to yeah. that situation and being able to kind of switch off quite effectively.
0: Yeah. I think it ultimately is like a muscle that you have to sort of train to yeah, be able to yeah. separate the, the professional and the personal in that aspect. Yeah. Uh, because at the end of the day, you don't want, if you are very passionate of a particular uh, problem in solving, you don't want it to get worse by a very, a very quick and unthought
2: of reaction
0: Yeah. Uh, caused by a totally unrelated thing.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree with that.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting that you don't identify as an entrepreneur, even if you have all of these organizations that you sort of like founded. But we're curious, like, even if we've had a lot of developments already, it's already 2023 for that matter, but it's still quite difficult to establish yourself in this space, especially if you don't have the right connections, the right backgrounds and the right, I guess, like networks. So how did you establish yourself and you know, really put yourself out there as someone who was credible and legitimate, even if you did not necessarily have the right skills to, to begin with. And what was your process in building your team?
2: So, in terms of from a standing start, the industries that I kind of was building my first businesses in were essentially renewable energy, biochemicals, and waste management. So, mm-hmm. and we ran you know large factories, developed products, set up supply chains. So that was a and I was when I set that up I was kind of early 20s, so that was a relatively um, kind of high technical and needed high credibility in order to kind of make it in that yeah. in, make it in that industry so very different from let's say a um, kind of personal finance app say something like that which is kind of got other challenges but it's a you know not you're not going to die if it goes wrong kind of thing whereas you know, if a factory blows up you know it, people can get hurt and that kind of stuff right, so it was a, right. a need for both a credibility to secure investment and customers and yeah. set up supply chains and yeah. partnerships but also to make sure that things were safe and secure and run properly. so again acknowledging some privilege here a lot of it was being like a six foot two white guy probably helped um, <laughs> but, and and also from like you know I studied at UCL and had you know, a few family connections this kind of stuff so the kind of combination of that gave a kind of a, a, a start mm. to be able to kind of get into into rooms for example. However, there's a great line in The Simpsons movie, which is um, Tom Hanks is, is playing himself and he says, the, the EPA has lost its credibility, so they're borrowing some of mine. Oh. And so it's this idea of basically, if you are, you know, in this case, the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, had lost its credibility, so they're, however, Tom Hanks is the most beloved actor in America, mm. so they're borrowing his credibility. Right. So what I've worked at and think is a, a hack or shortcut for entrepreneurs who are looking to um build credibility, whether this be in actually any industry is to it's a essentially a logo collection game mm. um and so you for example partnering with other organizations winning prizes getting press getting this kind of so essentially you're kind of working to kind of as a ancillary benefit to be able to get those logos and then you can for example let's say get a for example i'm a fellow of the royal academy a fellow of the Royal Academy of Engineering. And mm-hmm. so I can get a you know, a quote or an endorsement from the Royal Academy of Engineering and put right. the logo on my thing and say that you know I'm not an engineer. However, the Royal Academy of Engineering thinks Arthur's great because they said this was just about him <laughs> and he's a fellow there. And blah, blah, blah. That definitely helps. So, yeah. so, so if you're trying to build credibility in a space that that is a relevant badge to collect. Right. Um, right. If it's if it's let's say in my example earlier of the personal finance um, software app, it might be um, the equivalent from a you know economist at the London School of Economics it might be from a, pers- a well-known personal finance blogger it might mm. be from a trust pilot review or saying you know, whatever it is kind of thing so it's, it's right. how you build that credibility early on even when there's not necessarily that much substance behind it yeah
1: mm-hmm. makes sense I mean you just have to put yourself out there and I guess since you quoted the Simpsons it's sort of like sounding like Pokemon you gotta catch them <laughs> all <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. exactly
0: honestly I think um and also to segue to the next question um it's really the there is no straightforward way to sort of what the path is when you're beginning a venture and as um, both of us are PI students and in you are also teaching a lot of entrepreneurs from the IGP we are relatively in the budding stages of our career in in solving these wicked problems Mm. If, if it was possible for you to tell us, like, what were how were you able to design the solutions that worked, and what were like key factors in like that you were looking into in assessing a viability, the viability and scalability of these solutions? I think you've glossed over some earlier, but like, if you can be more specific,
2: so a lot is around. Starting with your customer and understanding what they want and I think I, I, I'm i not necessarily very good at doing this always myself But trying to understand very very clearly. Is there a actual customer need for this? I think mm. a lot of people and again, I, sometimes I've done this um, Build what they think should exist in the world rather than a specific need that they may have experienced themselves or that right. um, they know a customer experiences and, so, and I see a lot of people waste a huge amount of time and money going down that thing without with forgetting who the customer is. Mm, mm, mm. Um, and obviously that doesn't necessarily always mean that the customer has to be um, right, as in sometimes, that you know, there's the famous Henry Ford line, if I asked a customer what they wanted, they'd have asked for faster horses right, instead of yeah. the automobile. And so that doesn't necessarily mean saying which product would you like. There's a way, I, I'm sure you've, um, Familiar with kind of design thinking and the methodology in mm-hmm. terms of how you can go about understanding what customers may or may not want, yeah. rather instead of the, literally just saying, "Do you want this product?" Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are ways to get to that outcome, um, but that's kind of the the key piece. Mm-hmm. From that, then there's a whole bunch of uh, technical things that one needs to work through to end up on it, um, and also understanding what you actually need to build versus what you can buy. And so to give an example of that um at BioBean we made a decision, I think maybe maybe the right, maybe the wrong decision, but a decision to build an entirely vertically integrated business, which is a very unusual and quite rash thing to do. So we decided to own R and D ourselves, to own the supply chain ourselves, to own the factories ourselves, to own a chunk of distribution ourselves. And so and so we were literally, you know, developing and designing products from scratch. We were doing the engineering to make the machines to make the product we then were building and operating factories and then we were selling products at the back end um, all within a very small startup company so that's a very um, unusual thing to do to try and vertically integrate a small business versus to do that Um, versus with Skyrim what we're trying to do is be the interface for coordinating a number of existing operations so we try and partner with major landowners Mm-hmm. to build new floors above their existing buildings and we then coordinate a supply chain behind us which is a construction industry supply chain using in the case sustainable modular housing but we have made a decision not to vertically integrate to build a modular housing factory for example or to become a specialist designer of um, certain kinds of niche things we're trying to own the relationship with the landowner and coordinate that as a development manager rather than as a vertically integrated supply chain so understanding which piece within the supply chain is the is the value-added piece is really essential because if you you can one can spend a huge amount of time design redesigning things that already work very well rather than procuring them well you know, let's say you know, but for example if you wanted to set up a really good coffee shop you may choose your USP to be, okay, we you know, to source our beans very effectively or we have the best baristas or we have whatever it happens to be. you are unlikely, for example, to become designer own coffee mugs or develop the point of sale system for your coffee shop or to become an architecture company to then refit your coffee shop yourself and do all the designs and things. So you're understanding which parts, which of the USPs you're going to focus on and get very good at and design versus um, just procure. And most people... Should procure most things and decide what's the one thing or two things that you're going to become the best in the world at, and then focus on that.
0: Do you think this particular journey of figuring out what your USP is like is an easy one or something that entails so much reflection from the central
2: entrepreneur? It's. I think it's quite often. It's quite an intuitive thing, and people can miss. Again, myself included, can misunderstand what their actual USP is, mm-hmm. um, and so. It does take a lot of thought and reflection to get to what it is, but it is quite an intuitive thing. So it's not something that necessarily working hard at it will mean that you get the answer of what it is. It's not a number crunching exercise or not a particularly academically rigorous exercise. It's pretty intuitive and understanding actually what's going to make you different in the market. And a lot of people lie to themselves about what that actually is. I've got a friend at the moment who um, I believe is doing this at the moment. He's lying to himself. He's setting up a company and thinks that the, his USB is an actual USB and it's a fake USB. It's a, a different way of doing... And I've told him this many times, but he won't listen. But it's a, <laughs> it's a different way of doing um, the same thing, and he's convinced it's different enough that it's going to be completely game-changing for the industry. And okay. the, but essentially, it's you could buy it from 50 places off the shelf now, and he, he should procure it and focus on his USB, which could be Phenomenal Execution, for example, or could be... Um, Better distribution or you know, better procurement, and you manage your costs very well, and you got a better margin, so you can offer your product more less expensively. So fake USPs are a big danger.
1: Hmm. Fake USPs. USPs. Never heard of that concept, but it's quite interesting. <laughs> that well, it is, I guess, a phenomenon for some people to believe that hey, this is something that would really change the lives of everyone. But at the end of the day, they're just sort of deluding themselves. Like, oh, well, not exactly. But, you know, I guess some people need to try it out before they really realize that, mm. okay, it's not gonna work out.
2: Yeah, or, or at least understand where the challenge is. Let's, say, yeah. let's take an example of, um, you know, tackling malaria in mm. in sub-Saharan Africa. So, so I've got a friend who was doing this for a time, and they kind of redesigned the mosquito net. Mm. The issue was, the, she, she came to understand the issue wasn't actually that the mosquito net was not a good or it was not you could buy very inexpensive and effective mosquito nets now it wasn't a, a better mosquito net would solve the problem more effectively it was a distribution problem about yeah. and, and a usage problem in terms of if people will get it to the people who need it and will they use it once they get it yeah and so it's a trying to solve it through having a better mosquito net is neither here nor there you could have you know a mosquito net that costs even less yes. and um, was even even more effective and it still may not get to the right people and still may not be used.
0: Yeah. Makes sense. That and. was a very dense first half <laughs> of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, so maybe we can take
2: a quick
1: break so that people can sort of like absorb everything. <laughs>
0: and we're back.
1: We are back. What a break. And... Now we're going to, I guess, probe a little bit more about your businesses, Mm -hmm. starting with BioBean. So it's been around for about 10 years. And for those who don't know, it's the world's largest recycler of spent coffee grounds. So what can you say is the most important impact it has produced thus far? And how were you able to achieve that?
2: So BioBean turns spent coffee grounds into a range of advanced biofuels and biochemicals, so we make a range of products like biomass pellets, bio- biomass logs called coffee logs, and then a range of higher value materials, for example, infocaf, which is a biomaterial, and then fla- a range of flavours and fragrances, so the co- stuff that makes coffee taste and smell like coffee. The stuff that gets me most excited in terms of impact we've made thus far is around the kind of tens and tens of thousands of tons each year that we divert from landfill and anaerobic digestion and the kind of savings in terms of co2 and there's we can kind of count two savings here the first is diverting uh, waste from landfill or equivalent and that saves co2 because it stops in this case methane degradation which is a very 27 times more potent than carbon dioxide in fact and then means that you avoid that and then in addition we can displace conventional fuels so mm. The, and, and indeed, virgin materials. So instead of burning coal or wood, you can use coffee logs or biomass pellets. And then instead of using um, virgin uh, materials such as wood or plastic or um, whatever it has to be, is we can use infocaf. And then instead of using virgin coffee to make uh, natural flavors and fragrances, we can use our still natural um, derived coffee, but from spent coffee brands rather than from um, virgin coffee brands. Um, all of that means that we've collectively saved hundreds and hundreds of thousands of tons in terms of CO2 emissions. Mm. And we're, we're we've, and because of that we've been recognized as B Corp, kind of best in the world in terms of the environment as well.
0: I think it's quite impactful for like a startup that's just relatively 10 years, uh, 10 years old.
1: Yeah, 10 years is a short time especially for a lot of businesses when you compare it with let's say for example traditional organizations that have been around for like centuries or something around that number basically
0: <laughs> yeah and I think another venture that you have uh, that you also give up you gave us some insight a while ago with Skyroom it's a bold attempt to solve land scarcity in issue in mega cities like London like what was the inspiration for that particular business and um how do you see the organization evolve moving forward?
2: So the original idea for Skyrim was actually very similar to Bibean. Whilst they're seemingly very different businesses, what they both try and do is make value from waste. Or in this case in the case of Bibean, it's wasted stuff spent coffee grounds. And in this case of Skyrim it's wasted space. In our case we're looking at mm. empty or underutilised rooftops. The initial idea for the company name, in fact, was Waste of Space um, instead of Skyrim. And specifically what we do with Skyrim is we work with major landowners to add new floors in the airspace of our existing buildings. And we, at the moment, are operating in a few different countries, but mainly focused in the UK, as you say. Um, and in terms of, I guess, the idea there and why... It makes sense is the main cost of a house in a city or a, or a home in a city like London is not the architecture or the um, the building itself, it's the land upon which it's built. And so we keep trying to you know, to, to the point around fake USBs we were touching on earlier to try and make a house affordable is very 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 difficult if already 70% of the cost of the end product is the land. Hmm. So even if you were to almost put a building there for free, you've still got something that's you know, got 70% of the cost built into it. And so that's why you can, for example, spend we're here in Bloomsbury in central London, where if you were to buy a you know, let's say a 1,000 square foot flat that would probably cost £1.5 million, maybe £2 million um, but for exactly the same flat, if you were to move it to rural Wales you could buy that flat for probably £75,000. Right. So it's a you know, many orders of magnitude difference in terms of how much that flat costs, and that's the land. And so our insight was very crudely that if you could get what's called suitable urban building land, so land that you can build on, in places where people want to live, so not in this case not in rural Wales, they want to live in Bloomsbury, you can materially um, reduce the um, end cost And specifically what we do is we do it for key workers, so people who need to be near to um, their place of work in order to to deliver their jobs. So you can't have a nurse, it would be very hard for a nurse to live in rural Wales and work at UCLH, and therefore Mm. they need to be within a proximity of UCLH Mm -hmm. um, to be able to do that. And so our kind of theory of change is around if you can get those people near to their place of work i.e. delivering the 15-minute city concept for mm. London's key workers, you then will have a direct impact on them, which is you know better retention of NHS staff. Um, most of their income already goes on housing, so you can reduce housing poverty. A whole range of impacts there, but also the knock-on effects to our public services will be very positive because then you have, instead of a nurse being... Stressed and underpaid and um, overworked and feeling like society doesn't care about them. You have someone who is in a, a much uh, stronger position personally and able to therefore do their job more effectively and um, support patients and have a positive knock-on effect to society.
0: Who do you say would be your, like your key customers for Skyroom? Are they are it, are it those people like NHS? Because you say that they benefit more for having their staff near, or or is it? the the original building owner in which Skyroom is being built upon?
2: It's a great question. And it's a question we struggled with for for a few years, actually, in terms of understanding that because the end user is the person who eventually occupies the, the house or flat, and that's typically a, a London key worker. However, we realized that our customers, in fact, are major landowners. And so we've refined our business model somewhat to be able to actually focus on them. And we're still kind of tweaking it in terms of that but we are uh, the role that we take in the supply chain is a development manager and we provide mm. the kind of development management services but also bring a range of technology technologies and different unique approaches to the um built environment to be able to actually deliver this cuz it's a relatively technical product to be able to build you know between 2 and 10 new floors above existing buildings so it's quite a um, hard thing to do and so our company focuses on how you can do that and offer that as a service to building owners.
0: Is there a danger that these building owners would just impose the same amount, the same like preventative structures or rental structures to these healthcare workers with this new floor in their building?
2: Yeah, so we, we typically do between two and ten new floors, so it's significant amounts of new massing. But through the process, which in in London, it's managed through something called, or in the UK, it's managed through something called a Section 106 process. And so that's a legal obligation that you enter into with the local authority to deliver a certain kind of housing. So through the planning process, that gets agreed and ironed out with the landowner.
1: Interesting. I mean, I feel like at this point, we've covered so much already. Like all of the topics that we've discussed have been, A lot to absorb for sure for our listeners, so perhaps we can end on a lighter note. Uh, We noticed that you're a keen reader, so what do you think is the must-read for innovators out there who are trying to advance sustainability or address um, grand challenges like yourself?
2: Yeah, so I I read a lot and think that a lot of entrepreneurs should read or know listen to audiobooks or have they learn best because it's a very, very important thing to kind of think more broadly beyond your um, industry and area of expertise. Mm. So my first thing, I guess, similar to your earlier questions around what I enjoy reading, and it's a very, very broad range of stuff, so I don't actually read that much within, let's say, sustainable entrepreneurship. Mm. I'm usually reading books about... History or politics or design or engineering, or whatever it has to be, or kind of culture and that kind of stuff. I read quite a lot of non fiction. Um, but things I'd recommend if people were kind of getting started in terms of being an entrepreneur, I would say Robert Greene's work is good Laws of Human Nature, um, which is kind of, I guess, more like a what would it be, pop psychology maybe? Um, Peter Thiel's book, Zero to One. He's good, again he's a very divisive and controversial character but it is a a good framework to think about um, delivering his focus is particularly kind of entrepreneurship in software and in Silicon Valley but it's an interesting, a very well written book and an interesting approach on it too. Um, So those would be my kind of starting points from it and then, um, but the overall approach to reading would be read random stuff that's not obviously relevant to your set to and look at how those ideas can kind of cross-pollinate and help your existing thinking
0: right yeah well thank you so much Arthur for like taking your time off from your very busy schedule to entertain this podcast
1: yeah he only has nine nine other organizations no big deal deal. obviously this this man has so much time on his hands (laughs) but thank you so much Arthur it's been a pleasure having you and we hope that you enjoyed your time here as well
2: I had a great time. Thank you very much for doing such a great work with hosting and more importantly for setting up the podcast which is amazing and takes a lot of bravery and initiative. So well done both of you.